I'll have open, please, before you that passage that we read earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, We've got the other half of the story, if you like, tonight. So those of you who were here last time, we were thinking about the, the awesome holiness of God. Um, But here tonight we have a a different side of the picture um, that hopefully we will need to uh, weigh up as well and bring these two elements together in intention to some extent, but to understand who our God is and what he demands of us. A friend of ours at uh, university, not not a Christian, once went to stay with another university friend during uh, the holidays and while there she visited her church on the Sunday. Now I don't know that don't I don't know this church I've never been there and so I can't vouch for for what it was really like but but to this day uh, my friend's uh, words about her impressions of that visit stick in my mind. Uh, and she described the congregation as looking as if they had been quote unquote wheeled in and wheeled out. (laughs) Now, I don't think it was just a description of the average age, but more a sense of the congregation, of the fact that the congregation arrived, sat down, listened, and left. It was as if they'd been wheeled in and wheeled out. There was no life there. There There was no spark there. The service had just washed over them the people as unresponsive she had a a certain way with turns of phrases to use her phrases the people as unresponsive as if you were talking to a packet of digestive biscuits (laughs) well as i say i don't know the church (laughs) i've never been there it's possible that she was being very unfair but it's equally possible that she was spot on that her view as an unbeliever in the pew was even shared by the pastor in the pulpit. Because we all know churches, I'm sure, where the worship of God is rigid and cold and joyless. The congregation wheeled in and wheeled out. Well, how very different is the worship of King David in this chapter? It positively overflows with energy and you know for some of us perhaps tonight as good reformed strict baptists we may feel a little bit uncomfortable with david's exuberance here and all this leaping and dancing well it may just be a little bit too charismatic for some of us perhaps but david here has an unashamed joy in his god And he doesn't care who sees it. You see, the emotional pitch pitch of this chapter goes up and down like a yo-yo, doesn't it? From the noisy excitement of partying in the street at the beginning to the deathly silence as Uzzah lies dead on the ground. And then more jubilation as the Ark of God uh, enters Jerusalem only to have a bucket of cold water poured on it on all that joy as Michal's withering sarcasm reigns on David's parade. This is a chapter, isn't it, of, of two halves. There is David and Uzzah and there is David and Michal. 
Each half is a picture of joy followed by tragedy. Well, we considered Uzzah when I was here last time, and so this week we are looking at Michal. And it's the comment about her in verse 16 that introduces the, the sour note, doesn't it? As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. It's that reference to Michal as the daughter of Saul that gives the game away, really. Three times that's how she is referred to here in verse 16, in verse 20, and in verse 23. Not as David's wife. Remember, that's who she was. She's David's wife. She's not referred to as David's wife, but she's referred to as Saul's daughter. Because she is not with David here. She's not on a page with him. She is as far away from him theologically, spiritually and emotionally as it's possible to be. She is her father's daughter, part of the old hard regime and far removed from the joy of the kingdom that David represents. But nothing can diminish David's joy. He refuses to have it squeezed out of him and he will rejoice while the tragic note at the end in verse 23 falls on Michal. I want us to explore this evening briefly the idea of joyful worship and joy in the Lord that is visible here in David and that I believe is approved of by God. And so the first thing I want us to see Tonight is the joy that is manifest. Repeatedly throughout this chapter, we have clear indications of David's joy. In verses 5 and 14 and 16, he displays this almost carnival-like pleasure in the presence of God. For that is what, if you remember and you were here last time, that is what the ark of God symbolized. The Lord himself coming to dwell in the midst of his people. And in that sense, the ark was was like a a, a pre-incarnate symbol of God himself. It wasn't just a wooden box. It was God, if you like, tabernacling uh, among them. And as such, it was an occasion for great joy. And since 1 Samuel, if you want the history just briefly, since 1 Samuel chapter 6, the the ark has been in, in Bala, Judah or Kiriath-Jerim, as it's also known. But David wants it to be at the centre of kingdom life. And that's what this procession is is all about. It's about having God front and centre and rejoicing in the near presence of God. And David teaches us here that it is wonderful for us to have God in our midst. You know, we read sometimes, don't we, of of great revivals uh, and great blessings of, of the past. Uh, and we wonder, why, why is there nothing like that here for us today? Of course, we know that God is with his people always, but it seems we, we often know very little of the near presence of God. And I, I wonder, can I ask you tonight, do you miss it? 
You know, we sing about it sometimes, don't we? There's, a, there's the hymn, isn't there? Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Do you miss not having the, or, or feeling aware of the presence of God? You see, David missed it greatly. He craved to have God near him, and as a matter of priority, he sought God out, and he brought the ark up to Jerusalem. And it was a cause of great joy for him, a joy that was obvious, because true joy in the Lord can be seen. I want us to look here at the marks of joy. Firstly, verse 5, there is celebration. Uh, the NIV says David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might. The ESV says they were making merry. The word literally means to, to laugh. Not that worshipping God is a, is a laughing matter, but it is about being in a right relationship with God that means that it should bring a smile to our faces. Knowing God experiencing God, enjoying his near presence is a pleasure and it's right and proper that we, we rejoice in that. And we should know as Christians, if you're a Christian here tonight, that we have many reasons to celebrate. What do we read in the Bible? Rejoice, I say it again, rejoice. Our sins forgiven and cast into the depths of the sea. Our guilty stains washed by Jesus' blood. No condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. No wonder the psalmist cries, we will shout for joy when you, when you are victorious and we will lift up our banners in the name of our God. Do you do that tonight? You know, during the pandemic, none of us could shout out loud very much in church, could we? We... We were muzzled. We all had to listen to these recordings. But now you can gather together for worship and you can shout out loud to God. Even if when you couldn't during the pandemic, and even now if you can't, are you shouting out loud in your hearts? Are you lifting up your banners? Are you raising your Ebenezer? Are you saying, thus far has the Lord helped us and praising him with all your heart? You know, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and how in the New Testament we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength. Well, here David celebrates, we read, with all his might, with all his strength. He gives it his all there is nothing half-hearted about his worship. There is celebration. There is also adoration. Verse 5, singing songs and making music with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums. It's a kind of rattle. Think of babies, if you like. And cymbals. You know, it's a noisy time of praise going on. There's a full worship band here. What you think of that? And there is jubilation too. Verse 14. David dancing before the Lord with all his might, leaping and dancing, leaping and whirling. Verse 16 says, what are we to make of all this? Are you thinking, boy, he's a heretic tonight. We're not having him back. 
before he know we know it, he's going to be advocating bass guitars in church and dancing in the aisles. There are a few things that need to be said. Firstly, this was not a regular meeting of Israel for gathered worship. And so David's example here does not provide the template, if you like, for church services today. This was a one-off occasion of particular joy to mark the ark coming to Jerusalem. It wasn't the pattern for weekly worship. Few, (laughs) you might think. But, and it's a big but... David's dancing and the loud musical instruments do provide a strong mandate for worship that is not only biblical, but also joyfully exuberant. In other words, joy ought to be evident in our worship. You know, if we were in an African church tonight, the style of our worship would be very different. But just because culturally... We prefer a different style doesn't mean that joy is to be absent. The governing principle should be that everything should be decent and done in order. That's what Paul told the church in Corinth. You remember that messy church that was guilty of all sorts of excesses in worship which were dishonouring to God. Well, here's Michal, and she wants decorum, and she wants propriety, and she wants proper royal behaviour. But decency and order doesn't mean having all the joy sucked out of it. One commentator puts it like this. In our churches, there are any number of folks who are very concerned with services and externals and mechanics and meetings and decency and order, but who really can't understand anything of the joy of the Lord. They can muster enthusiasm and gusto over professional sports, but who somehow cannot fathom anything but professional detachment over Jesus Christ. Exuberant praise and tears of repentance are strangers to them. Someone else says, There are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic, but can it be right to give all our coldness to Christ and all our enthusiasm to the world? See, this chapter shows a clash of two kingdoms. One craves propriety, the other celebrates joy. The church of Jesus Christ lives in the era of joy. Celebration, adoration and jubilation are fitting responses to what God has done for his people. And it is right that our worship reflects this. Think of the father of the the prodigal in the parable, the father of the prodigal son. What does he say to the older son who wanted everything to be done right? He said, but we had to celebrate and be glad because joy is the right response of those who were once dead and are now alive and those who were once lost now being found. The joy then that is manifest Secondly, I want us to see the focus that is maintained. 
You see, Michal looks at David's exuberant joy as he delights in the presence of God and she despises him in her heart. And the reason she gives is the impression that it gives to others. What will the slave girls of his servants say when they see him cavorting around wearing this linen ephod? Clearly David has, has taken off his royal robes for this procession and in Michal's eyes he was underdressed for the occasion. And this was, this was the ordinary ephod that David was wearing. It's not the, if you know your, your Old Testament, you know the high priest, it's not the ornate ephod that the high priest wore, the one that was woven with gold and purple and scarlet threads, but this was the simple white garment that the priests wore when fulfilling their priestly duties. In other words, David is dressed humbly. Michal thinks it's, it's immodest, she thinks it's undignified, she thinks it's, it's vulgar, and it doesn't befit a king, but David comes as a humble believer. Michal is focused on what the slave girls will think, but David's focus is on God. It is before the Lord, verse 21, that he is celebrating, not before anyone else. And that is the constant refrain in this chapter, for the words before the Lord appear six times in this chapter. David celebrates before the Lord in verse 5. He dances before the Lord in verse 14. Michal sees him leaping for joy before the Lord in verse 16. David makes sacrifices of burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord in verse 17. And twice in verse 21, David protests, it's not the slave girls who are his audience, but the Lord. Because you see, all our acts of worship ultimately are only for an audience of one. Do you remember Mary, sister of, of, of Martha and Lazarus and what she did and what people said about her? She was despised, wasn't she? And she was criticized when she broke open that, that flask of expensive perfume and she poured it on Jesus' head. Why this waste? said the, the onlookers as they shook their, their heads in, in disgust. But Jesus said, why do you trouble this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You see, what others like Michal despise as excessive and undignified, Jesus calls a beautiful thing. You come to church here this evening... And you are to have eyes only for God. You're not to have your eyes on other people. You're not to be thinking what they're wearing, what's he got on tonight, what they're doing, what's she doing over there. You're not to be thinking who's that who's just come through the door. Because we come before the Lord and our focus is to be entirely on him. We are to give ourselves over completely to the Lord in an act of worship with an audience of just one. What we do in church isn't a performance for other people, but it is worship towards God. And it doesn't matter what other people are thinking or doing, our focus is to be on praising and glorifying him. 
See, David here refuses to apologise for what he's doing because he's got nothing to be ashamed of. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. David thinks nothing of humbling himself in order to worship God, casting off his royal robes. He's not interested in, in acting like a king because he knows he's just a servant. But of course what he does is nothing compared to Jesus who humbled himself far more. In fact, David's words here in verse 22, as the ESV puts it, making himself even more contemptible in the eyes of others, were fulfilled in Christ. Because those who looked at Jesus on the cross shook their heads at him in disgust. Yet that was Jesus' act of humble, adoring worship, in obedience to his Father and before an audience of one. Not, of course, that there was any joy for Jesus on that occasion, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. You see, it's no coincidence that David is wearing a linen ephod here, because he is a priest as well as a king. He wears a priestly garment here and he becomes one of the ordinary people. He offers priestly sacrifices in verses 13 and 17 and he pronounces priestly blessings in verse 18. And as such, he points us forward to Christ, to Jesus, our prophet, our priest and king who cast off his royal robes for us, not considering equality with God something to be grasped but making himself nothing. You see, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for sin in order to keep God's anger breaking out on us. And Jesus blesses all, like David here, Jesus blesses all who come to God through him. Jesus was so taken up with delighting his heavenly father that he gladly humiliated himself before a mocking world. And just like David here, Jesus wasn't diverted from extravagant worship that entailed the complete abandon of himself. And that's how we should be too. That's how we should be before God. David humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. It's only right that we humble ourselves too before God. No matter what people might say, or think. I don't know everyone tonight. I don't know whether there are some of you not Christians here tonight and you're thinking, well, do you know what? What would my friends say if I became a Christian? What would my family say if I became a Christian? We're not here to be thinking what others think. We have got to come before God and do what he asks of us. The joy that is manifest, the focus that is maintained, and lastly, the blessing that is missed. You see, David comes home 
Look at what he's doing in verse 19. He's lavishly giving out all these gifts to to the whole multitude of Israel. He's giving bread, he's giving meat, he's giving raisins to everyone. The The whole caboodle, he's giving it to everyone. And he comes to his own home to bless his own household. But Michal is not willing to be blessed. Instead, she greets him with sarcasm, doesn't she? And she misses out on the blessing. And Michal's problem is that she sits, she sits aloof. She sits, she sits apart from him. She is, she is literally not with David. She's not in the procession rejoicing with God's people, but instead she's looking down from her, on them from her window view. She really does sit aloof while David joins in. And I wonder how many churches have people in them who are not really with us. They sit aloof. They're critical of what's going on and they're despising in their hearts the true worshippers of God and they are not joining in. And Michal, you see, disapproves of David here. But God, it seems, approves. Because God, verse 21, has chosen David, not her and not her father. David knows that everything he has has come to him from God. And it is that attitude that is the starting point of true, adoring, joyful worship. This chapter ends with, with David, I believe, vindicated, while Michal is left barren. Michal is so concerned with, with form and, and propriety that her religion, if she has one, is so dried up. It's dead. And no one wants a dead religion. Not David and not God. You know, you know as well as I do why more of your chairs aren't filled this morning, this evening. You know you know, many people already think God is boring, which is why they prefer to watch football tonight rather than be here. We don't want our worship to confirm those opinions people have about God. Decent and in order by all means, but let our worship never be stiff and cold that it pleases Michal but it doesn't please God. Do you remember what Jesus said to the, to the church in Laodicea? That he hates a lukewarm heart. At school we used to sing, um, give me joy in my heart, keep me praising. Give me joy in my heart, I pray. I don't think I've sung that since I was at school. It's going back at least 20 years. It's going back a while. But it's true, isn't it? Give me joy in my heart. That needs to be our prayer, doesn't it? Give me joy in my heart. Keep me praising. That's what God wants from us. This whole chapter reminds us it's important how we behave before the Lord. God is present in our worship even tonight. So yes, thinking about last time, in case you were left thinking we don't come before this God. 
this holy God, how can we possibly come before him? Yes, he commands absolute reverence, but he also wants absolute joy. And we somehow need to hold those two things in tension. The proper balance, I think, is summed up in Psalm 2, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And the ones who are blessed are the ones who have the right mixture of humility and great joy. You might think, well, what has this got to do with me tonight? We are not kings like David. But if we are Christians, then we are a royal priesthood of believers. And as such, it is right for us to rejoice with great rejoicing. Uzzah reminded us that it's tragic to be irreverent. But Michal reminds us that it's tragic to find no joy in God. She had no children to the day of her death. I think it's right that there's a spiritual application there. The barren life of the person who refuses to find their joy in God. No fruit, no blessing, no hope of life to come. Compare that with David, who will glory in his humiliation for the certain honour that he knows will be his. What does the psalmist say? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. Or if you want a more modern song with the same message, surely there are 10,000 reasons for our hearts to find to bless the Lord and worship his holy name. Wheeled in and wheeled out. God forbid that that should ever describe you or me. For he has made known to us the path of life. In his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Amen. I was thinking what to sing to close tonight. The thing that first came to mind, it's not something that's in our hymn book, it's not something is in yours, but it's that, that song, really a more, well, I say modern, it's probably 80s, The Splendour of the King, do you remember when it uh, talks about um, splendour of the king clothed in majesty, let all the earth rejoice, and it choruses, how great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God. Well, that's all David wanted for Michal, that she would sing with him, how great is God, and for all the earth.